Hey everyone, welcome to No Percent Names Review Crew Podcast. This is episode 44 and I'll be your host for today, Kevin Gossett, the LA Reviews Editor for No Pro. And today we have... Hi there, I am Blake Weil, East Coast Curator at Large. Hey everyone, it's Patrick McLean, the Chicago Curator. So to, uh, for today's episode, we're going to dive back into our last two uh, book club entries. That's Planning Your Escape by Ellie Hall and The Night Circus by Aaron Morgenstern. So we're going to we're going to just dive right in today um, with Planning Your Escape, which we talked about in the Discord a, a couple of months ago. Um, so I'm going to let Patrick take it away. Yeah. Uh, so published in 2021, experienced and longtime puzzle creator Ellie Hall's book, Planning Your Escape, Strategy Secrets to Make You an Escape Room Rockstar, takes readers on an in-depth, two-folded journey. The first part of the book is their perspective on the history regarding escape rooms and almost how they were an inevitability of to occur. Like we were always going building towards having escape rooms be part of our culture. The second part of the book, which makes up most of it, details everything you possibly need to know about escaping your very first room, starting as early with just having the idea of going oh, I want to play an escape room and what to do next, all the way through to the possibility of what you do after your first escape room from maybe even being at home or other things you can try to escape uh, outside of an escape room. And that's kind of a brief overview of the book. This was something that we have all read. And I would love to just dive in regards to the first part of this book, which we did briefly discuss um, months ago when it was actually first released uh, i think at the top of the year we uh kind of talked about part one but part one is very intriguing because and i also think part one is the thing that makes reading planning your escape a must for people in our community because essentially it is welcome to the world of escape rooms and going as far back as ancient history in the 1800s hall well lays out this kind of very interesting dynamic of escape rooms about how everything is like fueled it. Like it was just always destined to happen. The elements of theater, the elements of the carnival and amusement park and the trolley park. It really is sort of a whistle stop tour of everything that set up not just escape rooms, but the entire sort of experiential arts world with a focus on puzzles and games though and that really was a delight to read through um yeah it's i think it's just a nice to get like a, a look at the history of it and and trace how these things kind of came to be whether it is an immersive experience or escape rooms i think hall does a good job of kind of laying out how how we got to this point in time and like what what made the the building blocks of like getting to this kind of themed entertainment and escape rooms and immersive experiences and how they are all kind of like tied together through history in some, some interesting ways. And there's also a lot of just fascinating pieces of tidbits of information that I learned that I was very glad to. Um, primarily a big one was the concept of Walt Disney creating trash can lids. 
I, this was mind blowing to me. Maybe you both knew this and all the listeners are like, yeah, no dub Patrick, but I have heard a million apocryphal Walt Disney trash can stories. <laughs> so I think that he was just sort of the fussiest garbage man on earth from everything I've heard about that. Um, well, there is two of those. There's two. So there's the one where in order to like prevent the trash from being seen, if it, the, the can got over full or was beginning to reach the, point where it was almost going to spill over that's why he had them design and put a lid on it so you've got to push your trash into it and then it kind of disappears and then the other kind of fascinating tidbit was that apparently he ate a, he went to a hot dog stand he bought it he started walking away and he was eating it and then he reached like 30 yards or something like that and he's like okay i'm done but i need to get rid of it and that's where they decided to place a trash can so like that became the rule of thumb <laughs> which i'm like okay See, I've sure that exact same story but that but instead of him eating a hot dog it was him giving hershey bars to all the guests and seeing where they just dropped the wrappers oh, i feel like they there's some probably truth to them disneyland is or disneyland's my main park so it's it's very clean like i don't all these things are very true and it's continued on through today so so long as we're talking though about the history of escape rooms i gotta ask when did you sort of hop on on this history because as someone who humble brag uh was a player of the original crimson room flash game which by many is regarded to be the first digital escape room uh, were you guys in that field or did you kind of come in when we had sort of physical escape rooms introduced. Where, where was your introduction to the concept? Well, if looking at the table of contents of the book and remembering specifics, I I guess in that sense, I came in and during the video game era, right? We're talking Nintendo and Sega on the 8-bit and the 16-bit machines because I think Hall rightfully points out the confluence of actually throughout many chapters in the first part how technology plays a pivotal role in escape rooms, both in functionality, but then then the concept of it being a destination people can go to and people having the transportation to do so. Um, and so I guess in that sense, it would be chapter eight, the dot-com era and beyond, which kind of was the 1990s to the 2000s, which I feel like that's when I spent a lot of time on the floor, three feet away from the screen uh, playing Super Nintendo absolutely the same here i i was talking more though in addition to this sort of proto escape room history we do get you know those few chapters uh on the real birth of the escape room proper mm. and starting in that flash scene uh on websites like newgrounds when anyone could whip up a little virtual escape room it was a very popular uh sort of form for the I flash like world i might have screwed around with some of the flash ones but i don't think i then i kind of like dropped off until the in-person ones really started up so probably mid 2000 or mid 2010s for me um was when i probably started and i by now i've actually probably done more virtual escape rooms than i have in-person ones even because i think that's something i don't think it's even covered in in the book because <laughs> it's, yeah. it's such a new kind of medium that we're pushed into in, in 2020. So, um, well, and on that note, I would say I would, my answer still holds true because then I, I think mist the, the computer game mist would probably be maybe the first escape room 
like experience that I encountered and enjoyed and finished. Um, and I think definitely Kevin with you, uh, it's interesting. I have pivoted more lately. I have done escape rooms in person and I've only done those more recently in my life within the last 10 years. But at this point now with like all the box experiences that I've kind of fallen in love with doing, I think I might've done more of those than actual in-person rooms. And I think that just speaks to the continued evolution that we've seen like past where where she stopped writing too is like it's it's continued to evolve in the last couple of years and I think it's been it's been we should also note that um they I, they worked on Traveler's Guide to Little Soderbergh which is one of our I think favorite uh online escape rooms that we all did together um I so there's, I, there's a Hall has a background in this in this field as well I gotta just jump in you mentioned the evolution of escape rooms that really can't be overstated the first escape room I ever played was a first generation scrap room scrap is one of the two companies that sort of independently invented the physical escape room at the same time one of them was in eastern Europe scrap was in Japan um the scrap room I did there were a lot of paper puzzles I think we had to do a crossword at one point the escape room as an art form has been super refined over time, and it was really a pleasure tracing that progression as well, you know, once you even get to the formal escape room. And this may be a kind of seeg into, into part two, which covers more about like how to actually play the escape rooms as well. So I think we can kind of keep talking about the history and our experience with them, but I think we can tie that into some of what she talks about. In part two, which is kind of like, what type of player are you? How do you, how should you play these games? How can you be safe in these games? What should creators you be safe in these games? And like, what type of puzzles are in these games, I think. So maybe that's kind of, we can, we can jump around through those topics um, too, I think. kind of Yeah. And I definitely think that was a really, a great strength in part two was how much thought and attention is put into planning your escape like actually going to the escape room what you need to do and very important things i think so often with many things culture wise or entertainment sometimes like i know kevin you probably remember but like blake maybe you don't sometimes there was an era where you just i thought just go down to the movie theater at seven o'clock see what's playing and we'll just get tickets and walk in and oh, that come is on. i'm not that young i i remember <laughs> that okay all right but but i think like <laughs> I, I fear with some escape rooms and from experiences i've heard from friends and families that like they're like oh i'll just try this thing rather than maybe take the time to be like what room should i do what type of experience do i want do i want really complicated puzzles do i want maybe a more narrative thing do i want lots of interactivity like so on and so forth and i think these first couple chapters are really good and there's one i want to highlight in regards to the question of chapter 15 what type of escape room player are you because hall lays out all these kind of different roles in regards to what people can do but i think it's very helpful to be like okay when you have your group, what roles are people playing? So I actually really quickly would love to ask, maybe just based off title alone for time's sake, uh, which players would you guys be? And there's there's positive ones and there's negative ones. So some of the roles are the explorer, the code breaker, the watcher, the cheerleader, the director, the hoarder, the hogger, the naysayer, the chaos agent. So which one do you think you guys are? 
I think I, I probably fall into the Explorer and the Watcher mostly. I, I think this is one of the things where you can shift probably in terms of any game you're playing or who you're playing with. If you're playing with people that are more dominant or like really good at escape rooms, it's easier to kind of like fade out um, unless you're also an extremely aggressive player. I think those are probably the ones I end up in. Blake? I definitely uh, think that I'm a bit of an explorer. I go to escape rooms for narrative and scenery and the sort of propulsive thrust of adventure. But I know I have done escape rooms with people who are going to go, Blake, why are you lying? You are absolutely a director. You know, we, we, I, have, we have seen you boss us around. <laughs> I think you're a code breaker, Blake, because I think sometimes you just instantly have this ability to really deconstruct a, a, a puzzle or something very quickly in your mind. And then I think you're maybe a, a director by default by like, the after effects because you're like oh i did it i'm just trying to be helpful when people think oh you just like are forcing the answer i i do need to sometimes remind myself to uh step back and uh pause let let everyone sort of play along follow the ride but no i i love escape rooms i will literally go whenever um I'm planning a trip to Europe right now and I'm losing my mind trying to figure out, Ooh, what escape rooms can I do? I want to see sort of the international flavor. Sure. And I, I, I unfortunately think I'm a director because I feel like the community of people who have interest in this, uh, that I hang out with or spend time with is somewhat smaller. And so typically I'm trying to invite new people in and a lot of these people are, had zero experience in regards to escape room. So I find myself, so I hope I'm a good director in the sense of trying to invite them in and maybe give them some pointers. But I do feel like, unfortunately, sometimes with a group of newbies, I'm, oh, maybe you should go try that. Maybe have you done this? You know, like maybe it's more of a cheerleader, but I sometimes have pointedly been like, why don't you go try do this and try it this way? You know? Well, See, I think that's, I... that's natural. I think when you're trying to get people into something they're unfamiliar with like you you have the experience with them i think you want to make sure they have a good time too is, is part of it when it comes to these like I, I want people to enjoy playing with me and enjoy escape rooms so they come back to them oh they're a lot of fun like what more people See, do them when i've done escape rooms with you though i would say that you definitely have all these very positive watcher qualities where you are taking everything in and absolutely ready to pounce when you have figured out you know the right next step next place to go mm -hmm. yeah maybe this was just all a ruse for you guys to give me some compliments <laughs> on the record oh well, very think, devious of you <laughs> i think it can be different in the virtual ones too because it's you're kind of more limited based on point of view or how like the, the camera works so to speak um, I think the in-person ones allow for more of these these roles to, I think, be seen as people kind of float around a room. Here, the virtual ones, which I, we've only ever played virtual ones together. We've never played one uh, in person, the three of us. We got to fix that. Yeah, we, we do. But that's a really um, good call out because the majority of this book is written for people who are going in person as a group to a physical location. There is a later chapter in the book in regards to online rooms, which... 
Hall does like kind of talk about some other ways to play and things to keep in mind and stuff like that. But a lot of the content here is if, if you have a community out there and you're listening and you guys play online, there's helpful stuff in this book, but this is definitely geared towards new people who are playing in-person experiences. Um, and on that note, in regards to that, I, another two chapters I really want to quickly call out, I think that are important is chapter 16, taking care of your body and chapter 21 strategies for communication and the importance of teamwork, because I feel very much so that this is something that we all, and I think I would include, I would include myself and I'm sure you guys would agree that we can sometimes get caught up in the experience in regards to like how excited we are or just getting really into a puzzle, but like being aware that sometimes you need to go, oh, wait a minute, I'm maybe not good at this puzzle or maybe someone else should do it. Or have I actually like, instead of like looking at something and going, oh, this is important and then putting it down and never talking about it. Like there's really important steps about communication in regards to that. And then just your body, like these experiences, escape rooms can be very taxing. Make sure you like, have plenty of water, maybe have a snack afterwards uh, as a treat, regardless of you get out or not, because you're using a lot of brain power here. And that's just a lot of stuff in those two chapters where I'm like, in hindsight, it's like, ah, oh, duh. But it was like really great for someone to point out and be like, this is, this is e as equally important um, to the experience and making sure you do it. So, you know, I can I can definitely speak to that just in terms of sheer fun. Uh, recently, I did uh, a couple of escape game reviews for No Pro. We were going to do them back to back. Um, I had a f one non No Pro friend with me, and our very own Allie with me on the adventure. And I insisted, okay, instead of doing this back to back, can we please have like an hour for coffee and pastries between them? And wouldn't you know it. Escape Room 2, we had a lot more fun, even though they were both spectacular escape rooms. Escape Room 1 might have even been a little bit newer, a little bit shinier. It's very easy to have too much fun to know how to keep the fun going. I, uh, so many times I've been, you know, running around Sleep No More and then burst into the bar realizing that, oh my god, I've, you know, from chasing actors around, I've lost mm -hmm. half my body weight sweating it out i need to juggle <laughs> you know eight quick things of water before ducking back in and keep going. Don't yeah stop. you gotta you gotta remember quality of time not just quantity of time well and also i think uh i'm never going to the gym again i'm just gonna go to skate rooms more often at that oh, rate a hundred percent um i i usually feel like i've run a marathon after a room yeah. And then the last chapter I want to call out is chapter 26, the types of puzzles. And I, and this is, I think by far one of the longest chapters of the book in regards to really breaking down the type of puzzles you'll encounter by, you know, what, it, by type, by name, but then also there are a lot of really great illustrations in regards to like, how you might see the puzzle and maybe how you might solve it and giving some really step-by-step -step stuff because there are a lot of types of puzzles out there. And there's, I'm sure you, once again, you would both agree that there's puzzles you guys are constantly encountering that you never have before, or maybe it's a, such a unique take on it. But I really think it was a really worthwhile chapter to be like, man, you can really get a lot into escape rooms, but 
it also then paired with the concept of knowing your strengths for you guys, what puzzles are you guys not good at? Like, so like, I, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to jump too. I think the, the chapter before it, which is about codes and ciphers is also kind of like, Oh yeah. The important part. Cause I think those are, those are some things I think. Cause you asked which ones like, are you more frustrated by? And I think some ciphers and puzzles like our ciphers are actually more frustrated by than like any puzzle types. It's like, why are we doing this one? It's like hard to figure out like what type of cipher it is. Or it's one you've never heard of. Uh-huh. And they expect you to kind of know how to do it. And like good ones will teach you how to like crack the code. But I think some of those, I don't even know which ones specifically, but um, I feel I'm frustrated more by certain ciphers than I am by like any particular puzzle. Okay. So on that note, uh, I will not do uh, Egypt rooms anymore because <laughs> once you see an Egypt room, immediately it's, oh, we're going to have to do some simple substitution cipher hieroglyphic puzzle that's going to eat up 15 minutes because we're going to have to translate the walls. And that drives me insane i always feel myself getting frustrated as those go on and then i get worse at like solving them as my attention to detail flags (laughs) and it just becomes this vicious time suck cycle of no fun so no never invite me to an egypt room never again that's funny and i would say the puzzle and i can't remember if it's outlined in the book but i cannot do the say a bunch of like letters or sound uh, like letters together to produce like a sentence. I, this is mm. actually something Kevin and I, we were doing a box experience of review for conspiracy from deadbolt society. And there was a puzzle where it's like, you just say this thing really fast. And I'm like, I, I spent like, you know, a good two to five minutes. I'm like, I, I can't hear it. I, I never can hear those things. So I'm so happy when we were reviewing that, Kevin, you were there because I would never have been able to <laughs> say it quickly enough or correctly to get the, the the sentence to appear. It's almost like an auditory magic eye puzzle. Yeah. And, yeah, because I was actually flipping through it some more and it does mention like those light and like sound puzzles, which I think can be hard too because if you don't, you don't hear it correctly or you have to like wait for it to like cycle through and replay it to hear the one specific hint that you missed the first time. Like those can be kind of frustrating in like an escape room experience where you feel like your time and it's like, why are we, why are we taking so long to, to like cycle through this so I can hear that the one thing I missed or to confirm. So now I think uh, we're going to escape into the night circus. <laughs> Oh, smooth transition. Uh, yeah. Five points for you. Yeah. Um, yes, Blake, I'm going to let you take it away. This was uh, sure thing. So I, I will be honest. I was the one who suggested this book because this was an old favorite of mine. Uh, I read this book before I got into immersive theater where I just thought of it as, wow, wouldn't it be great if this exists? Not realizing that, speaking of my experience at Sleep No More, this is basically a huge love letter to immersive theater, Punch Drunk specifically, and the fandom that surrounds it. Yeah, um, I would agree. I think The Night Circus is kind of... um was a very fascinating read and i'm glad i read it because i've actually never experienced sleep no more though 
at, at this point, I have experienced a great many things, both in person and online, that are clearly inspired by or take their cues from uh, Sleep No More. So this was kind of interesting in the sense that I was getting to experience something that I had never had before. And I really kind of appreciated that on a high level to kind of see the magic in how it captures everyone's imagination. Because clearly, I think very much so this author, as you pointed out, enjoyed their time with Sleep No More. And from that, uh, this book came. So and just I to think give like... Oh, sorry, go oh, on. Well, it is kind of interesting. I think she attended the Boston production of it too before it moved to New York. If I was reading the um, kind of her like afterward correctly, which, and I I haven't experienced that one, so I don't know the difference between them or kind of if, if that served as a different inspiration point than people may recognize in the current version um, of the show in, in New York right now. From what I understand, Boston was very much the tryout runs, that it was it was significant and it was very close to this production, but a little bit looser, a little bit more flexible, and a little bit more of a workshop where there was a little bit more freedom uh, as far as actors in trying to define, you know, their particular loop, their particular routine, uh, which you can very much see in sort of the independent artists creating their own world energy of each tent of the night circus itself in the book and just for people who may not have read the book just a quick little summary the night circus is a novel that follows a duel between two rival magicians who have been set on each other by their mentors uh, that takes place over the grand stage of them trying to craft this basically elaborate magical immersive theater performance called the night circus and slowly the two of them fall in love but as faded arch rivals how will they try to get out of this honestly the love story is take it or leave it for me but (laughs) the imagery is really what brings me back time and time again to this book it's got a really interesting use of perspective and tense uh there are certain chapters that are written in a present tense second person perspective yeah and there's there's and then it, there's a lot of very interesting things going on that i think i would actually say maybe to the detriment of the book in the beginning there's too much going on there's too many points of entry there's too much ugh, cleverness i can't think of a better word off the top of my head but there's too many narratives too many perspectives that you fall uh, can follow or maybe get hooked on because to Blake, to your point, I really found some of the, uh, you know, active, seemingly present tense chapters to be the most intriguing. Where, to your point with the love story, there was a lot of stuff that I too could take it or leave. I had a, uh, ultimately, I enjoyed this book, but I would also say that this book personally for, for me was not my cup of tea. Uh, I usually my the stories that involve magic for me, I typically like them to be darker, like magic comes at a cost. It's not something that you can just willy nilly do at your leisure and have a grand old time with. So there was that. I don't think anyone in this book had a grand old time. (laughs) I think all of the magic users in this book are utterly miserable. The dreamers did. The people who were experiencing their magic had a good time. So I guess just because the wizard chose to use their magic for the benefit of the public doesn't mean they didn't have to pay for it. That's what I have to say to that. But I do well, see what I wanted, you mean. To, oh, I wanted to jump in real quick. Oh, go on, I, go on. 
you've both mentioned that the the love story is kind of secondary to your interest in the book, but it also feels like the love story is kind of secondary <laughs> to the interest of the book as well. Like it disappears for large parts. It glosses over huge sections of like their relationship in favor of, of, and maybe I guess it's, it's saying their love story is like playing out through the way they, they interact with the circus, but her focus is, is much more on the circus and these like things that they're building that would be considered immersive than, than the actual love story you, too. You know, I gotta say the most moving part of the book and the one that feels the truest, maybe, you know, doing a little bit of biographical interpretation, perhaps, which I know my English teacher would frown upon. Uh, she always hated biographical interpretation, but I found the most moving part of the book and spoilers ahead to be really Bailey's story and that uh -huh. the discussion really within that story of the life-changing power of art and that reflected from this transition from, you know, a, a fan and a member of sort of this fan community to really a central pillar of what makes this work. Well, and well, I think... Those second cha person chapters and Bailey's chapters are really ones where it's like, it feels like walking into immersive for the first time, right? He's, he is that, that perspective. And I think it captures it, it pretty well as you're like, oh, like, what is this art form? Like, this is like blowing my mind a little bit. And then we just kind of like keeps trying to go back and back. And I think, I think it's probably been a thing in the sleep no more computer that people that like kind of go back to the show. Um, so there's an element of that too, which, which does make those chapters that I think shine um pretty strong well i had a very visceral reaction to bailey's storyline because i remember um it's in the middle of the book after having finally gone to the circus and having this amazing time that bailey you know leaves and goes home but then the 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 narrative the description really captures like how Bailey's life has been changed by this, that, that by going to the circus, it's like a pivotal moment in his life where there's the Bailey that was living his life before and would have maybe stayed on the farm or gone to Harvard or whatever. Like there was that path, but then in going to the circus, that Bailey is no more. And there is now this new Bailey, the Bailey who has discovered this amazing thing and has distilled this vibrant passion and dreaming of a life that he could have in him. And I, it was, I also thought the book was a little too long and I was really struggling in the middle and I came across that passage and I was just, I, I was incredibly moved and I reread it several times because I feel like to this conversation topics point is something we all have had you, you too. And then I'm sure many of the people listening have had this and that's why we're all here together. That's why we have this podcast. This is why there's no proscenium. This is why there's so many communities in so many places because we've gone to a piece of art. We've gone to a, an immersive piece of art and it's been so life-changing and opened our eyes to new experiences and the concepts of what we can do with art and so on and so forth. And that was just really powerful. And I'm to the, that point, I'm so glad that was captured so effectively and moving in this book. So on kind of a lighter note, you know, the circus itself as immersive performance, uh, any notes, any tense that you 
need to go to to see the act there? What are your takes on not the Night Circus, the book, but the Night Circus, the show? So I think what I mentioned in in the book club was I think Erin Morgenstern does an interesting thing where she gives you enough information about the the tents and the the experiences to kind of make them seem interesting, but doesn't give you too much where it's like this is silly. Like, well, and also that there's sometimes some of them have a technical component, so there's just enough mm. technology in some of these tents to make it believable that they could happen which I think was a brilliant stroke. Yeah. And I think even there's something like what the, the scent tent, like I think we've seen ex- uh, immersive experiences play with that idea, like not, not at capacity or like, or it's like something super integral that you've into your life that you're smelling again, but I don't, um, tales by candlelight. Yep. Tales Absolutely. by candlelight. Like yeah. that brings it in a huge way. And I think other ones even, even sleep no more, right? Like, each Oh yeah. Sleep no more. I was lucky enough. Smells. I was lucky enough to get the uh, the Hecate one-on-one the last time I went there, having never gotten it before. And the thing I remember most vividly about it is, you know, there is the scent outside that room, and then you step in, and it is the most overwhelming rose perfume you have ever experienced. And it's a, it's a very interesting mood maker and dividing line between inside and outside of that experience. Well, and there's even one, I I think it must be the a cleaning solution or something they use in the rave area. It has a very distinct and strong smell. So now whenever I smell it elsewhere, it's like, oh, it, like, why am I thinking about sleeping? It's like, oh, it's this like cleaning solution. See, it's very funny you say that because every time I smell kind of cheap chocolate, I think of the smell of that rave room because they always do the weird chocolate scented fake blood as mm-hmm. homage to Psycho. That is true. So yeah, I think we, like Patrick said, there's elements of these that do exist in immersive today and the book just, just heightens it where, where some of them have like a magical element um, too. So I, we're kind of like, what are, what were your favorite tents or? Uh, as uh, I mentioned, I am a scenery snob. Absolutely the labyrinth tent, which is just a series of interconnected kind of hard to figure your way out of rooms all of which are gorgeously decorated you know one minute you could be wandering through a forest before you realize that one of the trees is actually a door and you step through that and you're in a room of falling playing cards you know that constant novelty and sensation sounds spectacular to me well, I remember in book club, we kind of maybe realized I was initially like super depressed with my picks because off the top of my head, I was having a trouble before we pulled up a list. But I would say for me, and I, I guess I'm saying I'm still mildly depressed because I think a big one would be for me would be the wishing tree um, where they're partition, you know, the uh, patrons can like take a candle and then they light it with a candle that's already burning that's sitting upon the tree and then add it. So you need someone else's wish to make a wish, which I think is also just a really moving thing. And then I honestly, the fortune teller tent, but Poppet's fortune telling tent, um, which is a character who plays an integral part in Bailey's life and has a kind of is revealed to be a fortune teller at the end. And I just also, I think value some like, very simple one-on-one engagement sometimes, you know, like the power of a 
talented performer being in being in dialogue with them. I and- gotta say, knowing everything was sleep no more. Every time, and how am I forgetting her name? Who was the main fortune teller character that the book starts with again? Isabel. Every time they brought up Isabel, you know, having to do sort of a mental find and replace for Ava Lee Scott, who was the original Sleep No More fortune teller, was was a hoot and a half, especially because I've seen some of her solo work. She is such a talented performer. And and so, Patrick, I wanted to hone in. You mentioned The Wishing Tree, and then um, on the book club, you also mentioned The Pool of Tears as one. And I think those are both ones you can kind of see elements of that in modern immersive in shows where it allow you to kind of leave your your mark on them. And I, I'm not even thinking of, of Sleep No Here specifically. And so light spoilers for Then She Fell, uh, Julie Departed, is the uh, Pool of Tears in one of Alice Carroll's or Lewis Carroll's room. Um, you end up like writing a note and leaving it floating in his room, which is is kind of similar to that. And then the um, Mad Hatter's room where everyone ends up writing on scraps of paper and these papers pile up and you kind of leave your mark for other people to see, even if they are not like directly engaging with it. So I think there are these things that that work their way into immersive because they make sense and they, they kind of blend with the show or the book in an interesting way, I think. Well, and I think writing is a big one for sure, especially in the... Um the new world we find ourselves in because I feel like I've done a lot of um, mailing experiences where I've done this recently with Birch House, the a local company here in Chicago. They did a like a mailing package thing over several weeks. And the first one starts off with you being able to write a, 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 on a postcard and sticking it in the mail. So like just literally you get the package, you get the stuff, you respond in kind to the provided postcard and you stick it in there. And then it's out there in the world. You've you've opened yourself up and it's there in black and white and now someone else has it. And I think that's a very powerful thing. And even Welcome Home, which we bring up fairly often here, has a has a like digital component to this um, yeah. as well, where it kind of like it brings people together who haven't gone through the, sh- the show together, but it allows you kind of see how other people have been affected by the experience, which I think is is a big thing in immersive to kind of understand how it's affecting people, even if it's not totally clear, which I think is you see in the night circus with the pool of tears with the wishing tree with some of these other things. It's, it's so nice that we have a book that we can just sort of drop in the laps of anyone who goes, why do you like this? And go, even if, you know, all of us are kind of cool on the love story, even if the book does drag a little bit in the center, I think we discussed that it has a little bit of first novel syndrome, um, even even if it's spectacular, even if it has a huge fan base, it, it does have its issues. But what really makes it is that you can give this to anyone and say, this is why I like immersive theater, and they will get it. They will get it after one reading. Well, and I think what that's the genius on on that is that it's the circus. And I think that's such an easy touch point for so many people because I feel like circus and maybe also like a, a traveling carnival, I feel like a majority of people here in America have done one of those two things. So, and have been wowed, especially if they went younger. So it's a, probably a very easy buy-in for them in reading this book to be like, oh yeah, those magical places as... Uh, those magical places I went to as a child, oh, they really are magical. Now you're making me want to 
go back to the circus for the first time in Jesus 15 years. Well, I, I, it's not lost on me that like the Bailey who spoiler alerts takes over the circus and keeps it going like as a thing with when the magic can no longer sustain it, that they need to keep going like without the two magicians involvement that his name is Bailey. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, God, did you guys How not, did I not get no. that? <laughs> oh, I was just ah. like, that was like, that was like the first chapter. It came up. I'm like, oh, okay. Bailey Barnum circus. Got it. Duly noted. <laughs> Really? Oh, like you, oh, wow. Blowing oh minds. I'm a dummy. <laughs> <laughs> Patrick, Kevin, I'm a dummy. I, I'm, I'm joining you, <laughs> Blake. I didn't realize this either. And it seems so obvious in red. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there you go. This, this is why we have book club to all of us to read something and make connections and share them so that mm-hmm. we can discover things we've missed. There you <laughs> well, go. On that note, this has been an absolute blast. Um, any final thoughts on the Night Circus before we wrap up for the day? I don't have any. No, I, I really enjoyed it. I'm it's glad you recommended here. it, Blake. I don't think well, I would have read this book without Book Club. And without well, thank you. you. Um, you got to send something weird my way next uh, as payback. Uh my my last thought, I guess, is just if anyone was a fan of Fallen London, see if you can find an archival version of the Fail Better Games promotional game for the Night Circus. So because... actually, during Book Club, I did link it in the Discord somewhere. So you can go find that. It'll be your own little... In, in the Book Club channel. Sift through that channel to find where I, where I linked it. I was, I was screwing around with it a little bit. It, um, it's a little half broken now. It's a little bit... It needs some TLC, but... It was a such a beautiful promotional experience and really one of my consistent go-to touch points when I try to convince people that we should take commercial art seriously and hold it to the same standards as what some people might call quote-unquote actual art. So check that out if you have the chance. Yeah, it's it's fun. And I think it's like, it was maybe like a, a prototype for some ARGs we've seen like around marketing things lately. It's a little more involved than not like so ARGE, but um, it's kind of in that vein. So yeah, it's, it's worth taking a look. Um, so I think we're going to actually like, do you have any kind of thoughts on, on book club that you want to include going forward where we're, where we're going? Sure thing. So book club is going to take a one month pause during June uh, we had an amazing pilot season with the last three books we did. We have had an absolute blast, and the discussions in the channel have been great. However, I am traveling through most of June, moving and starting medical school. So we are going to be taking that time to regroup, figure out our next books. Uh, so far, I think we've seen a little bit more interest in the fiction than nonfiction, so... We might be veering in that direction unless we find some really cool must-reads in the nonfiction world. But other than that, uh, this has been a blast so far, and I am really looking forward to resuming it with you all. And I think, on that note, if you have any suggestions, just just drop them in the book club channel in in Discord, and we can uh, maybe use yes, that please. to to help figure out where we're gonna go go next. 
Absolutely. Uh, and I'm looking forward to hearing back from all y'all with those suggestions. Cool. So thank you both for uh, hopping on and talking, talking books today. It was a good, a good discussion. I'm, I'm glad I've read both, both books. Um, and it's just fun to chat about them with, with you and with the, the rest of the number of folks on, on the book club we've hosted in Discord. So a hundred percent agreed. Uh, so for review crew, this is Blake. And this is Patrick. And I'll sign off for the rest of the crew. So as always, uh, No Pro is a labor of love. Everyone on staff who you hear on podcasts like these and read on the site are volunteers. You can support this work by donating to the No Presidium Patreon. Even 2 or $5 a month helps. And if you're enjoying Review Crew or the main No Presidium podcast, you can also support us by leaving a five-star on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get them. Um, this is Kevin Gossett, and thank you. <laughs>